Tonight we are talking about freedom. The elusive quest for freedom. Everybody wants freedom. But as I've talked to people and as I've lived life now 43 years, it seems to me that nobody really knows how to find it or live in it for very long. We live in a culture that talks about freedom all the time. It's probably you know, going to be in the news and on people's lips and minds lately, coming up with Martin Luther King Day. We think about freedom, and yet all of us recognize that for all of our talk about freedom, we experience very little of it. At least the kind of freedom that really seems to matter. The freedom to be free from our fears and our baggage and the kinds of things that drive us. Our culture, I believe... It has a real fundamental tension at the very heart of it with regard to the idea of freedom. We long for freedom. We think that freedom means being free to do whatever we want, wherever we want, with whoever we want, and having nobody to tell us what to do or how to live our lives. And then we wonder why we're so dang lonely. We think that we're committed to freedom, and yet we long for community, and we don't see that our idea of freedom blocks us from having real significant connection with much of anything, at least the kind of connection that we were made to have. So we live with this longing for freedom, we talk about freedom all the time, and yet we don't experience freedom like we should, because we really have a misguided idea of freedom. Tonight, I hope you'll see that Christianity has a lot to say to this. But, unfortunately, for a lot of people, Christianity has been one of the biggest barriers to them understanding or experiencing freedom. And we can talk about how the culture doesn't understand freedom, but the fact is, the real tragedy is, is that Christians don't understand freedom. So many people that have been raised in churches have experienced very little of what they would call freedom. As a matter of fact, I would say most people in our culture think that Christianity has nothing to do with freedom. They think the idea that you can have a religion that insists on telling you how to live cannot possibly be compatible with freedom. The idea that I would get up here and say that Christianity is about freedom seems incomprehensible, not only to people in our culture, but to many Christians, because their own experience has been church, and Christianity has been where they've often experienced the least freedom ever. And and, and so, you know, we've got a hard task, I guess, tonight. But I would contend that Christianity is all about freedom. And I would contend that it's vital that we see the difference between the pseudo-freedom that religion offers and what Christianity really is all about. And that's why we're going through the book of Galatians. Because I know that most people at Belmont have had some sort of experience with Christianity or with the church. Not everybody. And I, you know, I don't know your story. Maybe you are just kind of interested in checking out Christianity for the first time. But I know a lot of the students that I meet at Belmont have had experience with the church and often not great experiences with the church. And Galatians is one of those books that really helps clear away a lot of the debris that surrounds Christianity and helps us see the difference between the gospel, the good news, and religion. That's why we've been studying it. But as you go through it, you find it's a pretty angry letter. Paul is really upset that the gospel 
the gospel of freedom in Christ is being threatened. So let's look at, look at this passage where we are here in chapter 5. And uh, we'll start at verse 1. We're going to read through verse 15, though we're not going to talk about all of that tonight. Just uh, for completion, we'll read all the way through 15. Paul says this, and I'm reading out of the ESV, in case you're wondering. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to everyone who accepts circumcision that they are obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. Only faith working through love. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you, that is God. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view than mine. And the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Let's pray together. Lord, we do ask you to help us to understand what is it that has gotten Paul so upset here? What is this freedom that he talks about that is so important? Help us not just to understand it tonight but to see you and your grace in such a way that we would experience this freedom, that you would come and set us free from our fears, from our sins, from our guilt, from our confusion, that we could submit to you and your righteousness, that we could worship you, that we could collapse upon your grace and be truly free people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I, uh, I think this passage really offers an explanation about freedom that makes sense of why it's so difficult for us to experience. We, we, we struggle so much to find real freedom. I don't know, how many of you guys are Grey's Anatomy fans? Anybody? A few? Well, yeah, some of the girls. I like it. You guys should watch it. Sometimes it's a pretty profound show about relationships. And, um, you know, there, there's two characters on there, Meredith Grey, the, the, you know, the show's named after her, and her on-again, off-again boy, um, Derek. What is he, Dr. McDreamy, they call him sometimes, right? Yeah. Um, 
And, you know, they, they're, they're always having this issue. I mean, the, the show, a lot of the, the storylines revolve around Meredith's baggage. So she's a girl, very wounded girl, um, a lot of baggage from her upbringing, her family life. And it, it, it's always spilling over to, to, into her relationship with this guy that she really loves. They seem to really love each other, and yet she's so darn scared of commitment. And I was thinking about this this past week that the episode sort of had kind of a, a turning point in some ways in their relationship. I won't give it away if you haven't seen it yet and you T-voted or whatever and you haven't seen it. But it was just fascinating because it was so clear in, in this show what I see in so many people and what I see in myself, which is this. We can't really be free. She couldn't really be free of trusting in herself unless she submits to something outside of herself. So many of us are trying desperately to be free, but all of our attempts to be free are really more and more slavery because the ultimate bondage that we have is our commitment, our addiction, if you will, to fixing things ourselves. And while we may think that we're gaining a little bit freedom, in reality, we're not actually breaking free at the fundamental level that we need to because we're still wrapped up in ourselves. And Meredith, you see it so, like, you can see it so clearly in her that her relationships are, are, in doom, are, are doomed or in danger because she is committed to staying safe by staying free. She's so afraid of commitment because once she really commits, once she really gives herself over to someone else, well, then she's not in control of her life anymore. And who knows what it will cost her? I think a lot of us can identify with that. I think in some ways, one of the mottos of this generation is stay safe by staying free. And yet there's this deep tension because on the other hand, we have this longing to be connected we talk about community all the time. And, and we find it so difficult because we're committed to this idea of safety by staying uncommitted. And then we're also longing for community. We don't see that the two just can't coexist. Meredith's hope and all of our hopes really is for something bigger than ourselves to break into our life and set us free. I think it's one of the reasons that we put so much hope in falling in love. I don't, I don't know if that's a very accurate description of what love is really like, but I think in that, even in that hope, even in that dream, we're, we're, we're expressing something. We're expressing this deep knowledge that we have that something has to come from outside of us to turn things upside down. We need something to break in, something out of the ordinary, if we would possibly be set free from ourselves. That's what Christianity is all about. That's what Christianity is all about, about something breaking in that sets us free. Look in verse 1 of this passage that we looked at tonight. For freedom, Christ has set us free. What Paul is saying there is the thing that Jesus came to do was to set his people free. If you would... If you would want to give a one-word summary of what the good news that Christianity proclaims is, it's this, freedom. And yet the great tragedy is, 
I, if I asked you to write down on a piece of paper 10 words that you thought described Christianity or a life in Christ, I doubt if hardly anybody would even put the word freedom in the top 10. I doubt if many of you have ever heard a sermon about freedom. And yet here, Paul goes so far as to say, it's for freedom that Christ has set you free. If you want to know the essence of what Christ is about, it's about freedom. And if you want to know what it is to live the Christian life, he says it this way, stand firm, therefore, and do not submit yourselves again to a yoke of slavery. So the work of Christ is described as setting us free, and the Christian life is described as standing firm in our freedom. Do you see? Freedom is the whole kit and caboodle. It's what it's all about. And notice this, freedom is not natural. It's not something we're born with. Paul says it clearly here. Christ has set us free. Christianity is fundamentally about the rescue of Christ. He comes to the rescue and sets us free. It's not about sort of coming to a realization that you really are free if you just believe it. It's not about sort of teaching you a bunch of things that you need to do so that one day you may attain freedom. It's not about teaching you that you need to quit caring about everything so that one day your heart will really be free from all worldly cares. None of that is what Christianity is about. Christianity is about Jesus coming in and setting us free so that we could stand firm and live lives that are characterized as free. That's what Christianity is all about. But until we get this, all of our pursuits of freedom are a vain-chasing after the wind. I, I, I put a quote down here. I won't read it all, but it's really fascinating. Beatrice Webb. She, Beatrice Webb. Anybody know who Beatrice Webb is? She, you should know who she is. She is the founder of the modern social welfare whole kind of way of thinking about things. She and her husband in England in the last half of the 19th century kind of begun the whole, the whole idea that through education and through um, you know, sort of uh, social welfare, we can fix the problems of our world. And it's fascinating. She writes near the end of her life this. I won't read the whole thing, but I'll read you this little bit. She says, somewhere in my diary, in 1890, I wrote, I have staked everything on the essential goodness of human nature. But now, 35 years later, I realize how permanent are the evil instincts and impulses in man and how little we can change these. For example, the greed of wealth and power. We must continually be asking for better things from our own and from other persons' human nature. But shall we get any response? And without a response, how can we shift social institutions from off the basis of the brutal struggle for existence and power and on to that of fellowship? Listen to this. No amount of knowledge or science will be of any avail unless we can curb these evil impulses and set free ourselves for good. Isn't that fascinating? How discouraging that would be, though, to sort of give your whole life, your whole life work, to thinking that you could change the world and getting to the end of your life and saying, the thing that just has prevented every good thing I've ever tried to do from happening is these evil impulses. I was naive to think that they could be dealt with through science or through social welfare or government programs. The problem is too deep. That's what Christianity teaches. The problem is too deep. 
It's not something that we can just tinker with, you know, a little tinker here or there and fix. How will you be free from your addiction to yourself? What Martin Luther, the great reformer, called the inward curvature of the soul. How will you be set free from that? And that's what Paul's getting at here. Now you see, because of our confusion about freedom, we've, we've just got all of, these, all of these ideas. People are always wanting to offer up ideas of freedom and recipes for freedom. But they all come crashing down. I think one of my favorite quotes illustrating this was Alanis Morissette a few years ago in Rolling Stone magazine. She had this to say. She said, Christianity taught me to view God as vengeful and judgmental. Over the last few years, though, I've realized that God is compassionate and has no preference over how we live our lives. I think that is communicated through the fact that we're given free will. There are definite universal laws, the laws of consequence and cause and effect, but I don't think God prefers one choice over the other. He or she or it notes rather than judges. Once I realized that, it immediately made me feel more responsible for my own life. If God doesn't judge us, all of a sudden it puts the onus on us humans. We are the creative force. We are creating what our world looks like right now and will look like down the road. Now, at one level, that might sound really good, and I think it sounds good to her, the idea that God merely notes but doesn't judge, that God has no preference over how we live our lives. And for a lot of people, that seems like the ultimate place to get to. If you can get to that place where you finally realize that God doesn't care how you live, ah, then you'll have freedom. But it, it's just an empty, it's an empty promise. Because to the degree... Well, let me just put it this way. How would, you, how would you like it if your parents noted rather than caring about how you lived? Would you feel all warm and fuzzy inside if your parents nearly noted what you did but had no preference whatsoever with how you lived your life? Of course not. And while at one level her words may sound like an invitation to freedom? In reality, every one of us knows that it's an invitation to an empty, barren life. To think that the God of the universe doesn't care how you live your life is not freedom, it's hell. And it also (laughs) makes for a world that you can't live in. And it's fascinating, you know, while people seem to think that if they can just get free of a God who tells them what to do, that everything will be better, in reality, they know that that kind of world can never work. Um, Another one of my favorite quotes from that same issue of Rolling Stone was Trent Reznor, Nine Inch Nails. He says this, Sometimes I get asked, do you feel responsible about what you put out lyrically? Or what are your thoughts on censorship? I've always said, I love this, based on my own head, give people the benefit of the doubt. Give them credit to think for themselves. Nobody has the right to say, hey, I'm telling you what you can and cannot see because I know better than you. That's ridiculous. I feel, yeah, empower the individual. And then you turn on the news and you see some new idiot who kills kids in a church and my argument goes out the window. It's troubling. It is. I mean, at one level, we think 
that it would be wonderful to live in a world where people don't tell anybody else what to do or where God doesn't tell us what to do or how to live. But in reality, you can't have a world that works that way. And if you did, it would be the most lonely, disconnected experience imaginable. Because the fact is, whether you realize this yet or not, all living in community requires you sacrificing personal freedom. You'll find this out as soon as you try to date someone. I hope you find it out when you get married. I hope you find it out if you actually try to pursue being a good friend to somebody. You have to discover it. It's the way reality works. Christianity, you see, Christianity is so bold as to say, this is the way reality is. You were made to be in relationship with God and with other people. And nothing you can do can erase that from your heart. And, and, and when God tells you this is how you're to live, you're not to live for yourself, but you're to serve other people in love. You're not to indulge the flesh, not to indulge and just do whatever you want. It's not what you were made for. The fact is, God's not just telling you that to squash your fun. He's not a cosmic killjoy. He's the one who made you. And he knows what he made you for. And he knows that the longer you try to live in opposition to what he made you for, the more it's like beating your head against a brick wall. After a while, it starts to bleed. And if you keep doing it, it bleeds more and more, right? You can't do it. But so many of us relationally are so committed to staying free. At the same time, we wonder why we're so desperately lonely and why we feel so alienated. You can't be committed to absolute autonomy and freedom at the same time you're pursuing community. You can't. All of the paths to freedom that we chase after inevitably lead to more and deeper bondage. As a matter of fact, that's one of the main themes of the book of Ecclesiastes, so I won't dwell on that too much. I just want to say this, though, that this is true of both religious and irreligious pursuits of freedom. Notice this. It's really fascinating. In verse 2, Paul says, uh, sorry, it's not verse, verse 2. It's the end of verse 1. He says, do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Now, that's really fascinating. If you remember what I've said about who these people were, the Galatians, they were not Jewish people. They were people who had grown up outside of the Judeo-Christian tradition. They were what was called in the first century pagans. I'm not saying they weren't religious, but they, they didn't have the Jewish-Christian sort of reverence for God and his law. Okay, They were pretty wild, crazy people as far as even the standards of that day went. They were people who did whatever they wanted, whenever they wanted. They lived for sensual indulgence, okay? And, and Paul says that now that they've become Christians and now that they are on the verge of falling into this false gospel, which I'm going to talk about next, that's where we're going right after this, he says that to do that is to fall again into a yoke of slavery. What that means is, that the life that they lived before they became Christians and this life that they're now on the verge of jumping into 
where they basically are going to accept circumcision and therefore try to get God to like them by what they do, those are both bondage, both kinds of slavery. In other words, their pagan, kind of wild, crazy, living for themselves existence and trying to earn God's favor by what they can do are both the same thing at their roots. Both of them are ways of rejecting grace. Before they came to know who Christ was, they were rejecting grace by saying, we don't need God, we don't need a Savior, we're sufficient to define how we want to live. But now that these false teachers have come in, these false teachers are saying to them, you can do what God wants you to do. And therefore, you you can control what He thinks about you. You could do the right things. Get circumcised. Don't eat this. Do eat that. Do this. Don't do that. If you follow that rule, you follow that life, you can get God to like you. And you can know that he's on your side. And you can be secure in that. And Paul says, no. That's just as much a kind of bondage as as the bondage you had when you thought you were so free. But in reality, you could never escape living for your own sensual indulgence. You could never escape living for what felt good at the moment. Listen, living for what feels good at the moment is the most wretched kind of miserable existence. My heart broke this last year as I was talking with a couple that I had married who were, who were in deep trouble with their marriage. And as I talked to, the, to, the, the, to the one of the people in this marriage, listening to them talk about how for them they needed to be authentic, And whatever they felt at the moment, they needed to be free to do that and live that way. And I said, how can you ever have any relationships at all if that's your basic approach to life? Don't you see? It's bondage. It may seem like freedom, but it's bondage. It's slavery. How does religion enslave us? This is is what Paul's getting at here. This is what the letter of the Galatians is all about. Paul says that if these people accept circumcision, they are rejecting salvation by grace. What Christianity is about is about being rescued. And it's not something that you earn. It's not something that you bring about. It's something that happens to you by God's grace. It's a free gift. And yet what these people who have experienced this free gift are now wanting to do is they're wanting to change the way they relate to God and go from relating by grace and being dependent on Him, they're wanting to now embrace this way of living where they're saying, I'm going to do the things God requires. What Paul says here is if they embrace circumcision, they are actually changing the whole basis upon which they relate to God. Because what these teachers were saying was, if you want to be a really good Christian, you want God to really love you, you have to do this thing. Now, circumcision may not be the, the thing that everybody talks about today, it may be if you want to be a really good Christian, you can never drink alcohol or you can never watch movies or, you know, in your grandparents' day, it was don't play cards. Christians are always great at coming up with these things that they think really define the Christian life. And if you do this and don't do that, then God will like you. And what Paul says is if you go down that road, it leads to spiritual disaster, Because once you go down that road, once you change the whole basis upon which you hope for God to accept you from his grace to what you can do, 
you got to go the whole way. Once you begin to trust in your ability to get God to like you, you will never know freedom again. And Paul says this is absolutely vital for you to understand. I mean, what he basically says to them here, look, in verse, um, verse 4 and verse, verse 4, right? He talks about them being severed from Christ, that if they would be justified by the law, in other words, if they would trust in what they can do for what God thinks of them, they're falling away from grace. That's really strong stuff he's talking about here. He's talking about apostasy. Do you know what apostasy is? Apostasy is not Christians losing their salvation. It is somebody who has professed faith in Christ, somebody who has claimed to, be, to, to have received the grace of God and be trusting in that as the basis for their relationship with God. It means for a person who has said that, who has claimed that, to utterly reject it and to say, no longer will I trust in that. Now I am going to trust in what I can do. And that's how serious Paul says this is. That if you accept circumcision, you have rejected the only basis upon which you can hope to be welcomed into God's embrace. If you accept circumcision, then basically what you are saying is, I'm willing and able to stand before God clothed only in what I can do. You want to do that? I don't want to do that. It's inconceivable in some ways that that a Christian would want to do that. But let me tell you, here's how deceitful our hearts are. Our hearts are always wanting to tell us, well, you know, it really would be good to just people to tell us what we're supposed to do. I mean, at one level, living free requires a lot of work. It's hard. You have to think and wrestle about, should I do this? Should I do that? Does God want me to do this? Now, I know sometimes we get into this morbid introspection about that kind of thing. And you can listen to my convo I did on knowing God's will if you want some some help in that area. But here's the thing. There really is a part of our heart that that really resists freedom because it resists responsibility. You may wonder, why is it that we don't just embrace this freedom? And I'll tell you why. It's because it's really scary to trust boldly in Christ. It seems that you're not, you, you don't have any other backup plan. <laughs> and it seems that if you really trust Christ completely, well, he can ask you to do anything. Again, we fall back into that idea. You stay safe by staying free. I don't know what God may ask you to do. I don't know what God may ask me to do. But I'll tell you what, if, if, if I'm really convinced that I'm completely dependent upon him for everything, it's really hard to tell him no. If I think that, that I did him a favor in coming to him, if I think that he should be proud to have me on his team because I'm such a great guy, well, then that gives me a little basis upon which to say, well, now I don't know, God. I think you're asking a lot. <laughs> Do you understand? Does your heart work that way? I suspect it does. This kind of religion is not Christianity. It's not Christianity. A couple points in conclusion on, on how, this, how this goes. You see, the gospel is different than doing 
the right things. Now we're going to talk at the end of this chapter, or tomorrow, sorry, tomorrow, next week, we're going to talk about Christianity does cause you to live a certain way. The, the end of the passage I read tonight talks about faith ex- expressing itself through love and about um, the whole law being summed up in this, serving one another in love. And that's what you're made for. And that's what Christianity calls you to. But, but it's vital that you understand why you would do that sort of thing. Because here's the thing, the false teachers that Paul is attacking care about holiness as much as Paul does. But they have completely different ideas about where the motivation to live the Christian life comes from. One of my professors in seminary used to say, the real problem in the Christian life is not figuring out what to do, it's finding the courage to do it. Where will you find the courage to be free from having to take care of yourself? Where will you find the courage to be free from having to get people to like you? It's only, it's only by submitting to something outside of yourself, something bigger than yourself. And here's what it is. It's the righteousness that we hope for. You see it in verse 5. He says, Christians, this is what's true about Christians. Through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. The key to understanding what does it mean to be a Christian is that your whole life is oriented towards this righteousness that's not yours. It's outside of you. It's something that's been given to you and it's something that will be given to you in a sense in a more dramatic and and, um, public way when Christ comes back again. We have the righteousness of Christ if we have trusted in Him and yet we hope And we long for and eagerly expect with confidence that one day Jesus will come back and say, well done, my good and faithful servant. Not because we've done so well, but because Jesus did so well. In in other words, look, the, the gospel doesn't just teach us something new. It changes the whole basis for our hope. And that's absolutely key. It changes what we rely on. It changes what we worship. What Paul's saying here in verse 5 is, eagerly awaiting the hope of righteousness should be an ongoing experience and practice of Christians. The reason we sing these hymns is because it's an opportunity for us to celebrate the work of Christ that is our only hope. We tend not to sing songs that are about, Lord, I just want to do this. Because we know that our hearts are so twisted that the last thing we need is to walk out of here feeling like God is pleased with us because we promised to do all these good things. That's not what worship is about. Worship is about celebrating and falling more deeply in love with Jesus and what he's done for us. It's the only thing that actually begins to heal us of this curvature, inward curvature of the soul. If you don't Know that what Jesus did was enough for you to be accepted in God's embrace, then you will never be able to let go of caring what other people think about you. If Jesus' salvation is not enough, you will never be able to be free of what other people think, of what you think you need to do. Do you understand? 
We can talk about freedom all we want, but the only way it actually happens is if Christ rescues us and if our whole life is continually oriented to that rescue and understands that that rescue is enough. See, here's the the crazy thing that we need to understand. If Christ came to set us free and we're walking around in bondage and in guilt all the time, we are actually dishonoring the work of Christ. This is a big deal. We walk around like people who are desperate to get people to like us, who are desperate to find successes in life so we can feel better about ourselves. And in actuality, when we do that, we live that way, we're dishonoring the work of Christ. He came to set us free. Did it work? It did. It did. But the only way you'll be able to to be set free from these these things that threaten to, to bind us is by remembering and thanking Him and praising Him for what He's done. Where it begins to actually get down into your heart and your soul. Where you begin to, to feel fear. Oh my gosh, I'm going to walk into this room and nobody's going to know me and I'm going to feel like I don't belong. And I hate that. I better, I better put on my smiley face and pretend that my life really isn't a mess. Right? What's going to set you free to be honest and to be real? To know that, you know what? If I walk in this room tonight and nobody says hi to me, Jesus still sings over me. As Zephaniah 3 says, he rejoices over me with singing. Oh, it'd be nice if people welcomed me tonight, but I don't have to have it. Maybe I should go in to RUF tonight and think about welcoming somebody who needs it more than me. You know? It turns everything upside down when the, when the welcome that Jesus has earned for us begins to sink into your soul. And all those other things that we think we have to have that in reality bind us and enslave us begin to melt away. It really does work that way, guys. The only way to be free of your deepest bondage, your commitment to your own sufficiency and having to take care of yourself is to realize that Jesus has already earned for you what you're trying to get from all these other schemes. Are you trying to get accepted? You've been accepted. If you're a Christian, you've been accepted into the embrace of the sovereign Lord of the universe. Jesus, the only one who actually earned his way into God's love because he did everything that the Father asked him to do from the heart Jesus, the only one who had a right to stand before God with his head held up high, willingly submitted to taking on our sin and our shame so that he could could die in our place so that we could stand before the Father and know that we're accepted. Jesus, the one who did not need to be separated from the Father, who knew no sin, became sin for us, Paul says in 2 Corinthians, so that we might become the righteousness of God. That's what has to get down into our our hearts and soul. 
So let me ask you this. At the heart of Christianity is this truth. Do you know it? That Jesus gave us freedom to stand before God, knowing that everything that would make God want to run away from us has been taken away. Do you know that? Do you know that everything that would make God want to run away from you, Jesus took at the cross? There is nothing left, if you're a Christian, that makes God disappointed, that makes God ashamed of you. That's why the book of Hebrews says that we can come before him boldly into the very intimate holy of holies, before the very face of God, and lift up our heads and look into his loving face and know there is a smile there for us. And we know that because Jesus earned it for us. And when we fail to embrace that and to appropriate that freedom, we are dishonoring the work of Christ. We need to repent. We need to believe. And I need it as much as you do, maybe more. So can you be free by trusting in a religion and trusting in one who claims to have the right to tell you how to live? We're going to talk about this next week. But I'm going to tell you this as we go. The idea that Christianity can claim to tell you how to live and still be consistent with the idea of freedom makes sense if you understand that the lawgiver is your lover. Or as the book of Isaiah says, your maker is your husband. Think about that. That's a very intriguing idea. In other words, the one who tells you how to live is the one who lived and died in your place. The one who made you. God is never a tyrant. I love this quote by Charles Spurgeon. He said, When I thought that God was a tyrant, I found it easy to sin. But when I realized that he was loving and gracious, oh, how I smote my breast that I had ever sinned against him. The key to actually living the Christian life is embracing the free grace of God. We're going to talk about that. Understanding this idea of being accepted into Christ's embrace, into God's embrace through the work of Christ, is absolutely key to changing the way you live. And it's what God is all about. It's what Christianity is about. And I just got to say, if you're a Christian and you don't understand freedom, you don't feel it, talk to me. Let's talk about this. Let's pray about this. Because something, somewhere there's a disconnect. I know that the work of Christ is sufficient. But I know that our belief in that work of Christ is often very weak. We need each other. We need the Spirit of God. We need the Word of God. Because we need to believe the truth. Let's pray together.